Second Corinthians, the fifth uh, chapter, thirteenth and fourteenth verse, say, "If we're beside ourselves, it is for God." In other words, if we're crazy, it's for God. But if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ constrains us. That word "constrain" and it's an interesting word. It means it wraps us around. It gives us a direction will not allow us to go any other direction, gives us an impelling motive. In other words, it pushes us forward. When once we've reached the conclusion that one man died for all, and therefore all mankind has died, that his purpose in dying for all was that men and women, while still in life, should cease to live for themselves and instead live for him who for their sake died and was raised to life. Well, that changes everything, doesn't it? That if the purpose of God in dying... For you and I, was that you and I, while still here, because I mean, he could have taken us home as soon as he justified us in response to, to our faith in Jesus Christ. Why stay? Right? I mean, please take me home now. I'm clean. I don't want to fight the fight. But his purpose in doing that was that you, while still in life, should cease to live for you and instead live for Jesus in the world. As a matter of fact, his love won't leave you any other choice. The more you know of his love, the more he constrains you and moves you to live like he lived, to lay your life down in love. Amen? Turn with me to James for a few minutes. We'll just do about the first half of it. From James, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Greetings to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the world. My brethren, whenever you have to face trials of many kinds, count yourself extremely blessed in the knowledge that such testing of your faith breeds fortitude. And if you give fortitude full play, you will go on to complete a balanced character which will fall short in nothing. If any of you fall short in wisdom, he should ask God for it and it will be given him. For God is a generous giver who neither refuses nor reproaches anyone. Only let him ask in faith without a doubt in his mind. For the doubter is like a heaving sea ruffled by the wind. A man of that kind must not expect the Lord to give him anything. He is double-minded and never can keep a steady course. The brother in humble circumstances may well be proud that God lifts him up. While the wealthy brother must find his pride in being brought low. For the rich man will wither away like the flowers of the field. Once the sun is up with its scorching heat, the flower withers and the petals fall. And what was once lovely to look at is lost forever. So shall the rich man disappear as he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For having passed that test, he shall receive for his prize the gift of life promised to those who love God. And no one under trial or temptation should say, I am being tempted by God, for God is untouched by evil and does not himself tempt anyone. Temptation arises when a man is enticed and lured away by his own lust, and then lust conceives and gives birth to sin, and sin, full grown, breeds death. Make no mistake, my friends. All good giving, every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of the lights of heaven. With Him there is no variation, no, no play of passing shadows. Of His set purpose, by declaring the truth, He gave us birth to be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Of that you may be certain, my friends. Only let each of you be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to be angry. For a man's anger cannot promote the righteousness of God. Well, away then with all that is sordid and the malice that hurries to excess and quietly accept the message 
planted in your heart, which can bring you salvation. Only be certain that you act upon the message and do not merely listen, for that would be to mislead yourself. The man that listens to the message but never acts upon it is like one who looks in a mirror at the face God gave him. He he glances at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looked like. But the man who looks closely into the perfect law, the law that makes us free and dwells in its company, does not forget what he hears, but acts upon it. And that is the man who by acting will be blessed. Now, a man may think that he's religious, but if he cannot control his tongue, he is deceiving himself. That man's religion is futile. The religion that is without stain or fault in the sight of God our Father is this, to go to the aid of orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself untarnished by the world. My brethren, believing as you do in our Lord Jesus Christ who reigns in glory, You must never show partiality. For instance, two visitors may enter your place of worship. One a a well-dressed man with gold rings. The other a poor man in shabby clothes. Suppose you pay special attention to the well-dressed man and say to him, please sit here. While to the poor man you say, you can stand or you may sit here on the floor next to my footstool. Do you not see that you are being inconsistent and judged by false standards? Listen, my friends, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom He has promised to those who love Him? But you have insulted the poor man. Moreover, are not the rich your oppressors? Is it not they who drag you into court and pour contempt upon the honored name by which God has claimed you? If, however, you are observing the sovereign law laid down in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, that is excellent. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin and stand convicted by that law as transgressors. For if a man keeps the whole law apart from one single point, he is guilty of breaking all of it. For the one who said, thou shalt not commit adultery, said also, thou shalt not commit murder. Now you may not be an adulterer, but if you commit murder, you are a lawbreaker all the same. Always speak and act as men who are to be judged under a law of freedom. In that judgment, there will be no mercy for the man who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. My brethren, what is the use of it for man to say he has faith? Will that faith save him? Will that do him any good? Suppose a brother or sister's in rags with not enough food for the day, and one of you says to him, good luck to you, keep warm and have plenty to eat, but does nothing to satisfy their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So with faith. If it does not lead to action, is in itself a lifeless thing. But someone may object. Here is a man who claims to have faith, and another who points to his deeds, to which I reply, Prove to me that this faith you speak of is real, though not accompanied by deeds, and by my deeds I will prove to you my faith. You have faith enough to believe that there is one God? Excellent. The devils have faith like that, and it makes them tremble. But do you not see, you quibblers, that faith divorced from deeds is barren? Was it not by his actions in offering his son Isaac upon the altar that our father Abraham was justified? Surely you can see that faith was at work in his actions, and that by these actions the integrity of his faith was fully proved. Here we find fulfillment of the words of Scripture. Abraham put his faith in God, and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. And elsewhere he is called God. God's friend. So you see that a man is justified by deeds and not by faith in itself. The same is true of the prostitute Rahab also. Was she not justified by her actions in welcoming the messengers into her house and sending them away by a different route? As the body is dead when there is no breath left in it, so faith, divorced from deeds, is lifeless as a corpse. My brethren, 
Not many of you should become teachers, for you may be certain that we who teach shall ourselves be judged with greater strictness. All of us often go wrong. The man who never says a wrong thing is a perfect character, able to bridle his whole being. If we put bits in horses' mouths to make them obey our will, we can direct their entire bodies. Or think of ships, large they may be, yet even when driven by a strong gale, they can be directed by a tiny rudder on whatever course the helmsman chooses. So with the tongue. It is a small member, yet able to make huge claims. What an immense stack of timber can be set ablaze by the tiniest spark. And the tongue is in effect a fire. It represents in our members the world with all its wickedness. It pollutes our entire being and keeps the wheel of our existence red hot and its flames are fed by hell. Birds and beasts of every kind, creatures that crawl on the earth and swim in the sea, all can be subdued and have been subdued by mankind, but no man can subdue the tongue. It is an intractable evil and charged with deadly venom. With it we sing praises to our Lord and Father, and with it we invoke curses upon our fellow men who are made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouths come praises and curses. My brethren, this should not be soul. Does a fountain gush forth both fresh and brackish water out of the same opening? Does a fig tree, my brethren, yield olives or a vine figs? No more does a salt spring yield fresh water. Who is wise or clever among you? Let his right conduct give practical proof of it with the modesty that comes from wisdom. But if you are bearing selfish judgment in your heart, let's just stop there. James kind of in your face, isn't he? No, 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 no. I have great writers. Let's play, let's praise him. Amen. amen. We, uh, I believe a year ago when I was here, I shared with you how we got involved in, in ministry around the world and the Lord called us to speak the scriptures and we met some uh, people traveling from West Africa and started sponsoring uh, children with them and then got really involved in uh, in Ghana with refugees and in Liberia with orphan work and widow's work and then widow's work back in Ghana again. And uh, now we work in um, both of those countries. Uh, we just, this today, our opening, we rented it last week, a uh, second house for girls in Liberia. We have uh, two houses for boys. We help a man who has 20 girls in his house, but we, we open in a house called Precious Life Home. Uh, we have 22 girls there and 17 babies and two more on the way. We have um, just opening a house today with um, 17 girls that were on a standby list that I didn't know existed. And uh, almost every one of them is pregnant, mostly from rape, because rape is epidemic in uh, West Africa. But these are all orphan girls that were put out of orphanages because they turned 16 and no longer internationally adoptable. And so they go to the streets with nothing, no, nobody to care for them, no care, no roof, no food. Uh, Liberia has an unemployment rate of 95 to 98 percent unemployment. Uh, you live on less than 50 cents a day on average in that country. Uh, the average lifespan of a man there is 38, which is one year more than when Jesus walked. And uh, it's very sad. There is a nation among us uh, that has no borders and it has no army. It has no president or parliament or emperor or anything. It's just a nation, a vast nation, maybe two billion in number. They have the worst medical care of any nation in the world. They have the worst educational standard. They are abused in home and factory and field. Uh, many of them are enslaved or indentured. Um, most have no roof. 
70% of them will never go to school. Uh, 70% of them will not get enough to eat today. And um, they're growing. There are many even in, in the boundaries of the United States. It's a nation of children, of course. A uh, hundred million of them are enslaved. A hundred and fifty million of them are orphaned. A hundred and twenty million of them are blind and deaf, and they'll never get any care for their blindness and their deafness. Um, there are thirty million child prostitutes, maybe more than that. That's kind of a conservative number. Half a million children are um, drafted against their will into militaries and fight. The largest number of that is here in the Western Hemisphere. Um, in Haiti alone, nine million people. The day before the earthquake, half of them did not eat that day. Half the population of Haiti is under 18. Five percent of them were in schools run by the government, and they were not being well-educated there. Sixty to sixty-five percent of them were in private schools, overwhelmingly church-related, and most of them had no books. I was in schools with five or six hundred students, and the only books in the school are on the principal's desk. That's it. There are no books. That was before the earthquake. We had been working in Haiti with the understanding that there were about 20,000 orphans in Port-au-Prince. There may be now a quarter of a million. There are well over that in unattached children. That's kind of a euphemistic statement, unattached. Um, there are maybe a half million, and these numbers are really hard to conceive of, and I know that's difficult. I've thrown a lot of them on you here quickly. Uh, maybe a half a million children who are, they call them Rechevec children. They're, um, if I have children and I'm desperately poor, which is not unusual in Haiti, and you're a little less poor than I am, I will give you one or two of my children to work in your kitchen if you'll feed them, generally with the promise also sending them to school, though they never go to school. There may be a half million of those, and, and many of them are in the streets now because the houses they served are on the ground. Uh, about 20% of Port-au-Prince, I think, fell down. My wife and I had, had gone down there. We, we had been invited to come down and, and, uh, and look around a couple of years ago, and I went and I spent two weeks there uh, preaching, teaching pastors for two weeks and feeding them. That's what you do. You know, they invite you to come down for a conference, which means you fly down at your expense and you feed the pastors while you teach them. And uh, we did that, but every morning we went around to different Christian schools and uh, Every evening, preached the gospel in various churches and asked uh, one neighborhood. It's called Giardo Ravine area, and it's one of the slums of Port-au-Prince. There are many slums in Port-au-Prince. About 50,000 people, I would estimate, and it's just a ravine coming down out of the mountain into the city, and it enters at Petchenville. And Petchenville, is, they call that a suburb of Port-au-Prince, but don't think of suburb here. You can't tell the difference. It's more like Daly City to San Francisco than... Uh, uh, anything else, and um, you go right from Petchenville into Port-au-Prince. There are 300,000 people within the boundaries of Petchenville. We're outside Petchenville boundaries, or maybe 50,000, and they build these rooms up the hillsides, like uh, almost like pueblos. And there's alleyways that run through them. There's no city services, no electricity, no running water. Uh, the the ravine is the common area. People hang out around it. There's piles of garbage there, goats, pigs, babies on occasion. 
Uh, when it's raining, it's full of water. And the rest of the time, there's a trickle in it maybe, and you can wash your clothes there. Um, it's a hard place. It's a hard place. And I asked the pastor that was showing them around. He's a Baptist pastor. His name is Predestined, which is a great name for a Baptist pastor. And, uh, and he loves the Lord, and he laughs, and he says, we need an orphanage because there's orphans living in the alleyways. Well, in, in up until 2008, those orphans got the overflow of food. People cook in the alleyways. They outflow their rooms. There's 15 people in a room. You, you live outdoors, you know, in the alleyway. And, and there was extra food. But in 2008, in the summer, they had four hurricanes <clears throat> in August. And it cleansed the land of what little food they could grow. And there was no food. And the graft and corruption locked up the food in the porch. And there was no food. And so children were dying in the streets. And the, the Haitians were shocked. They've endured much oppression and they, they endure it with a, with a stoicism and a hope for tomorrow that would, that would encourage you and a patience that just is astounding to me. And the gospel was winning. It still is winning. Many of the high places that had been places for voodoo are now prayer points and I'm just rejoicing at that. And so the children were dying. He said, we need an orphan home. And so we found one. There locally to the church, one of the three churches he's founded and pastored. And uh, we rented it and we put uh, 12 bunk beds in it. In, in orphan speak, that's 24 beds, right? And so uh, we took 24 kids in. And then uh, that was in July. And, and in uh, last January, um, I went back with a friend and, and we saw that work. I wanted to meet the kids. I didn't know the kids. And, and we... Uh, and we added eight bunks. That's 16 more kids. And uh, 40 kids, we thought the house was full. And so uh, we went on our way feeling good about things. It had a generator, you know, and all that. And then people kept bringing children by. And we said, we don't have any room. They kept bringing children by. Perdesson would call me and says, somebody's here with a child. Shall I take them? Well, of course you take them, right? But the house is getting full. And then, and then two orphanages in Petchenville closed because they lost their funding in the economic downturn. And, and they called and said, we want to bring you our children. Pedestrian said, I don't have any room. They said, well, we, we have to bring them. We're going to put them in the street. He said, no, 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 don't put them in the street. And he called me. I said, well, offer to, to raise the money for food. We'll buy the food. You keep the kids. We'll give you the food. You know, I said, no, 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 we're going to close. We've lost our funding. And so these kids are going to go to the street. He said, okay, okay, okay. Tell them we'll take them. How many? Fifty. Fifty? We got 40. We're full. How are we going to take 50? Okay, well, that's Sunday. The following Sunday, we're scheduled to take the children. On Monday, a little girl was found abandoned in a house. Her mom couldn't feed her. Her dad had died, and so her mom left her. They brought her to us. That's Isabella. We named her. On Wednesday, we found a two-year-old wandering in the streets. They found her. She had no parents, didn't know her name or anything. That's Dominique. We took her. Friday, three more. The following Sunday, 50. The following Monday, another. Then somebody brought seven children by from about one year old. And the little one year old boy, he's maybe one and a half, it just struck me. He's wearing these pants and he soiled his pants, you know, and he's just scared. And there's seven brothers and sisters, and they, they got the Ethiopian shoulders, you know, big shoulder, no bone, no, no muscle, no nothing because they're not eating. He said, Their parents had died. They've been living with their grandparents. Their grandparents can't feed them. Will you take them? We can't take them. We're full. We're full. We, I mean, you walk on beds in this house. You, 
we can't, the, the adults with them started crying and said, forgive us and turn and ran away. And we took them. Well, the Lord brought us to a place where we were praying for another house. You know, God, we really want to rent another house. Would you, would you give one? Would you show us one to rent? And he brought us to this place, and it's difficult to explain, but the love of Christ constrained. And the love of Christ said, okay, we won't turn any more away. We're not turning any away. Well, God, that means we've got to take them all. Whose children are they? Who's the father of the fatherless? It's God. Who loves his children more than you can even imagine? The Father. Who will provide for them? The Father. Will you stand in the gap for them? Will you take them? Okay. We'll take them. However many you want to provide, Father, we'll take them. We'll care for them. That day a woman came by and said, I want to rent you my house. A little closer into Petchenville. Big house, nice house. I want $15,000 for a year. $15,000. Predestined said, well, she may take thirteen. I got $125. Okay. Uh, She wants to know if you're going to take it. Well, tell her we'll take it in 10 days. We'll pay her. Okay. And the Lord provided $13,274 in those 10 days. She took 12000 We paid 1000 to the real estate agent. Now we have that house. That was in August. It's full. We took 47 children from my father's house one and put them in my father's house two. And now my father's house one has over 100 children in it. My father's house two has almost 100 children in it. And we're full. So my wife and I, uh, you know, we're believing that God's going to do another house. So we started praying. And Predest said, I found another one in a very needy neighborhood. Okay, how much? $10,000. Okay. So we prayed for it. A man and his wife had told me in, in December that they wanted to give us $100,000 this year, but they weren't going to start giving until like April. Well, that was pretty exciting, but that's April, right? And so we started praying. Well, the week after Christmas, he called me and said, my wife wrote a check and I have to send it to you. So we want to front you $20,000. Will that help? <laughs> um, you probably heard me from here. I was in Idaho when he said that. And, uh, <laughs> And so we, we, my wife and I wired the money down there and went down uh, in January, got there the, uh, the morning of the 12th or noon about, and we went to the guest house, a new guest house. We'd never stayed there before. It's run by the United Methodist Church and, and you know, Methodists and Baptists, we kind of like this, right? So we, but it was closer to our houses in Petchenville, and the guest house where most people stay is down more towards downtown on the flat down there. So we decided we'd, we'd do this one, same price and everything, and, and, and <clears throat> Predestin got it set up. And so we went there. Well, met three men who were from the United Methodist uh, main office in um, New York. We're down there to help to have a meeting at the Montana Hotel. And one of them flew in with us, and we were talking, exchanging cards, you know. And, and they left to go to the Montana Hotel for a dinner meeting at 4 o'clock. At 5 o'clock or so, the earthquake hit. And, you know, being from California, earthquake's not a new thing. Uh, we sort of like we were kind of being earthquake, uh, we needed an earthquake, so we went to Haiti to have it, you know, and, uh, and we get down there, and we're sitting under a house, is a two-story house, and we're under one wing of it, and it's like a patio under there, and, and I look at my wife when the earthquake come, you know, and we all both said earthquake, and you sort of wait to see if it's going to be a big one, right? And then it was going to be a big one, so we got up and we left underneath there, and they, the women wanted to go under the tables, we said, no, 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 get out, you know. We went out, and it was a good thing, and the house didn't fall down. That was cool. The one next to us, three-story, 
block and concrete building. The top floor dropped onto the second floor. The other end of the building went down all three floors onto the ground. If it had come down on this side, it would come down on us because we were standing there waiting for it, you know. And uh, swimming pool water's going everywhere and chairs flipping into the water. It was an interesting time. My team had gotten there at 4 o'clock. They were in a van on the way to us. When they finally got back to the guest house after we'd done the medical things there in the front yard and the rescue next door to drag some people out, um, we got in the van, we unloaded it, and we drove up to find the children and found them well and the houses in good shape and everything. And we rejoiced at that. And then we came back to help where we were because many people slept in our yard that night. But um, nothing changes except the numbers. The love of Christ leaves us no choice. Uh, came back and we got out by C-17, which was pretty cool. You ever been on a C-17? Big three-story tall uh, Air Force cargo jet. That's huge motors. I can stand in the middle of one of the engines and do this with my hands. That's how big they are. And there's four. You know, and it's swept wing and it takes short takeoff. And we got up in the air. We tried to get the pilot to do uh, barrel rolls, but he wouldn't do it. It was really cool. And uh, he took some kids up the cockpit. We said, you're wasting that on the youth, sir. You need to bring us dads up there. We, we like this. So got back, and my wife went on to Germany for grandma duty. And then last week, I went down there. Again, a friend of mine and I went down, took money down, and uh, saw the children. Uh, the pictures in the back there, the one on the east wall on the right, was from that trip just in, down in the Port-au-Prince. Life has gone on 250,000 people later. The love of Christ constrains us that we must act upon our faith. And we are to do that, it says in Ephesians, in imitation of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. He laid down His life for us. You cannot lay your life down for sin. That's been done. It's paid for. All sin, from Adam to the end of time, is paid for in the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. But His love demands that if we believe that, we are to walk in imitation of His love. Not to pay the penalty for sin, not to work your way to God. You cannot do that. But that others might know. And that you might meet the needs of those who cannot help themselves. The least. Matthew 25 indicates that Jesus comes to us as a hungry person. As a naked person. As a filthy person. As a homeless one. As a sick person. As an imprisoned person for their faith. The least of these, his brethren. I used to think, you know, when, when I got to minister to somebody, because I was working rescue missions and stuff, and, and we get to give somebody, Jesus has come into your life. No. Jesus has come into my life. And that changes everything. That means when, when I get to go, when I get the opportunity, because God says that we're supposed to walk in good works, which He has created beforehand for us to walk in. When I get to do that, I get to minister to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. What an astounding reality. 
they're being Jesus to me. Uh, we don't do much. We, we work in, in Liberia and Ghana and, and India and, and the like. But there are ministries doing far greater, you know. But we get to do that. What a privilege. What a privilege. I was in India and we, we got to start an orphan work there. We have a house there. We just are buying a second facility now. We put the money on it yesterday. Uh, it's, it'll handle 200 children and we're going we're gonna to fill it. Uh, we rented two houses in, in Port-au-Prince yesterday. We're going to fill them. Lord willing, we'll have 10 by the end of the year. If, if God will do that and show us the houses. Uh, we, and that's still just a drop in the bucket according to the need. Uh, we have those houses in, in Liberia and another orphan home. We have widows' works in Ghana and refugee camps. And we stand with two works in Kenya. And it's all just a privilege. Just a privilege. I was in India at, the, at our home there. And, and we found this place to work. And we took children and about half of them from, child, uh, from temple prostitution, which you don't hear about much here, and, and um, brought them in. And, and they painted. We found this school building that wasn't being used. And we rented it. And they painted it. And we put water to it which wasn't a good idea because then the people wanted more money for it, of course. But, um, and they painted Scripture all around on the walls. And, and some of it they even put in English, which is sort of for me because I don't speak Telugu, you know. Uh, William Carey translated Telugu into a written language. I want to talk to him because he didn't put it in, in Arabic script. I can't read it, right? So um, we, uh, they wrote on the wall that verse from James 1, 27. That pure religion and undefiled is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Dot, dot, dot. But of course, that's not where the verse ends, is it? It's to go to the aid of orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself untarnished, unspotted by the world. There are many who try to work their way to God by doing good. There are many who preach a social gospel as if that will save you. Doing good will save you. It will not save you. The Bible is often worshipped, but it will not save you either. I believe every word of it. I believe it is inspired by God. I take it literally, when it's supposed to be taken literally. It's the Word of God, but it will not save you. But it will lead you to the one who will, Jesus Christ. Jesus said you diligently study the scriptures, supposing that by having them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures which testify to me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. How do we go out into the world keeping ourselves untarnished by the world? Well, we live differently than the world lives. We are to walk in practical holiness every day. We are different. We're forgiven. We're free to love. We're free, you know. Faith gives birth to hope. Right? You have a living hope. It's evidence of Christ dwelling in you. It comes when you believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the one who justified you in response to your faith, which He put in you in the first place, which was awakened when you heard the good news of that. And when you came to Him and you, and you said, Lord, I believe. You called Him Lord, which in fact He is, but you humbled yourself to Him. And He came in and gave you new life. And the evidence of that is He birthed a living hope in you. And now you're free. You're free. What can man do to you? Can you harm me? You want to kill me? Praise God. I get to go to be with Jesus. 
I want to be with him. This fight I'm in, this war I'm in, is hard on the flesh. I don't like it. I want to be with Jesus, but I'm free. You can do nothing to me. If you imprison me or make me a slave, I'm the Lord's freed man. I have submitted myself to him in joy as a bond servant. I'm a slave by choice to righteousness now. I'm free. What am I free to do? I'm free to love. Agape love. Love spawned by God in the heart of the yielded saint. Because I can speak with the tongues of men or of angels. I mean, I can be the greatest linguist the world's ever seen. I can be the greatest orator the world has ever seen. But if I don't have that love spawned in my heart by the Holy Spirit, agape love, a love that's measured by 1 John 3.16, it says, by this that we know what love is, that Christ laid down His life for us. If I don't have that in my heart, a love that denies the love giver for the sake of the loved one, in Jesus' name, if I don't have that... It doesn't matter how well I speak. It doesn't matter what language I speak. I'm nothing but empty noise in the world. I can have the gift of faith. I can move mountains. I can take some of these mountains we got around here and put them in Iowa because they're kind of mountain challenged. And I could understand prophecy. I could know the book of Revelation and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Daniel backwards and forwards and inside out and have it all figured out. But if I don't have that love, the word says I'm nothing. I can give every penny I have to the poor, to the last cent. I could give my body to be burnt that I might glory as a martyr. But if I have no love, I have not profited even one thing for all my giving and all my dying. The Apostle John knew Jesus when John, you know what it means when a preacher looks at his watch, right? Nothing at all. Okay. Um, the Apostle John knew Jesus from the time that John was just a young teenager. He walked with him. He was part of the inner circle. He saw all the miracles. And God royally saved him. Came in, birthed him into his life. Filled him with the Spirit. Made him an apostle, a messenger, a sent one. He was a teacher. He was an apostle of God. He was a prophet. He was a living testimony to the saving power of Jesus Christ. And he walked out that life in Christ for 70 years. That's a long time to know Jesus. It wasn't for want of trying. They tried to kill him. They hounded him, they persecuted him, the Jews first and the Romans. They supposedly, traditionally, boiled him in oil and couldn't kill him. They exiled him to Potmos and God gave him a most wondrous vision. He came back to Ephesus, wrote it down. He took care of Jesus' mother till she died. And she died, by the way. He lived out this Christian faith. And at the end of his life, God moved him to pin the Word of God. And it was at the end of his life. Uh, he was maybe 90 before he ever wrote anything that we count as Scripture. I hope that at 90, if I live that long, that my heart is soft enough to be moved of God. 
Because as, as men they were, but moved by the Holy Spirit. That word moved is used in Acts to describe a small boat sitting on an ocean that is held back by sea anchors. And when they cut the anchors, the sea moved the boat to the shore. Men they were. John was a man like you and I. He saw Jesus live as a man too. And at the end of his life they were saying Jesus wasn't a man. He was only God. You note that all heresy either denies the deity or the manhood of Jesus Christ. right? And these people were coming along and they claimed knowledge and they said Jesus wasn't a God. He, he, he wasn't man. He was only God. Excuse me. As a matter of fact, they said if you'd look closely you would have seen that his feet did not touch the ground. Because he was all spirit and spirit and flesh can't touch because spirit's good, flesh is bad. John was incensed. He was upset at that lie. Because he saw that Jesus was a man. He walked with him for three and a half years. He saw him do everything that men do except marry. Jesus was a man. A human. Completely. Suffering to be born as a human being. To know the dependency of being an infant, needing your mother, needing the things that nurture you and keep you alive, which he could not provide for himself because he was so weak. He knew what it was to skin his knee and to cry. He knew what it was to feel pain and hunger and thirst. Jesus knew what it was to mourn the passing of his dad. Maybe many other friends. Jesus knows you that way too. Because he was like you. But of course he was also God. And John, at the end of his life, was picked up by the Spirit of God and moved to pin the Word of God in response to that lie. And also to show us that as followers of Christ, with Him birthed in us by His Spirit, that we can live in imitation of Him and His life of love. Because there's only one conclusion to all the arguments. There's only one conclusion to all this Scripture. It's Jesus Christ. And that if you will follow Him and be His disciple, it means you will be disciplined by His life to live a life of imitation of him that he will fill your heart with love and enable you to love like he loved and you're supposed to do that it's your turn we in our turn are bound to love when we go at the end of this service to to contemplating and examining our hearts that's the question to ask first am i in christ do i believe on him Secondly, what's my part in the body of Christ in relationship to my loving? Am I loving like He loved? Let's hear 1 John. It was there from the beginning. We have heard it. We have seen it with our own eyes. We looked upon it and felt it with our own hands. And it is of this we tell. Our theme is the word of life. This life was made visible. We have seen it and bear our testimony. We here declare to you the eternal life which dwelt with the Father and was made visible to us. What we have heard and seen we declare to you so that you and we together may share in a common life. That life which we share with the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. And we write this in order that the joy of us all may be complete. 
Here is the message we heard from him and pass on to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to be sharing in his life while we walk in the dark, our words and our lives are a lie. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we share together a common life and are being cleansed from every sin by the blood of Jesus, his son. If we claim to be sinless, we are self-deceived and strangers to the truth. If we confess our sins, He is just and may be trusted to forgive our sins and cleanse us from every kind of wrong. But if we say we have committed no sin, we make Him out to be a liar. And then His Word has no place in us. My dear children, writing thus to you, my purpose is that you should not commit sin. But should anyone commit a sin, we have one to plead our cause with the Father, Jesus Christ. And He is righteous. He is Himself the remedy for the defilement of our sins, and not our sins alone, but the sins of all the world. Here is the test by which we can make sure that we know Him. Do we keep His commands? man who says, I know Him, while He disobeys His commands, is a liar and a stranger to the truth. But in the man who is obedient to His Word, the divine love has indeed come to its perfection. And here is the test by which we can make sure that we are in Him. Whoever claims to be dwelling in Him binds himself to walk as Christ Himself walked. My dear children, I give you no new command. It is the old command which you always had before you. The old command is the message which you have heard from the beginning. And yet again, it is a new command. New in the sense that the darkness is passing and the real light already shines. Christ has made this true and it is true in your own experience. A man may say, I am in the light, but if he hates his brother, he is still in the dark. Only the man who loves his brother dwells in light. There is nothing to make him stumble. But he who does not love his brother is in the darkness. He walks in the dark and has no idea where he's going because the darkness has made him blind. I have written to you, my children, because your sins have been forgiven for his sake. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who is and has been from the beginning. And I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and you have mastered the evil one. To you, my children, I've written because you know the Father. To you, fathers, again, I have written because you know him who is and has been from the beginning. And to you, young men, I have written because you are strong. God's word remains in you and you have mastered the evil one. So do not set your hearts on the godless world or anything in it. Anyone who loves the world is a stranger to the Father's love. For everything the world affords, all that panders to the appetites and entices the eyes, all the glamour of its life springs not from the Father, but from the godless world. And this world is passing away with all its allurements. But he who does God's will stands forevermore. My children, this is the last hour. You were told that Antichrist was to come, and now many Antichrists have appeared, which proves to us that this is indeed the last hour. They went out from our company, but they never really belonged to us. If they had, they would have stayed with us. They went out that it might be clear that not all in our company truly belong to it. And you, no less than they, have an anointing. This is the gift of the Holy One, and by it you all have knowledge. It is not because you are ignorant of the truth that I have written to you, but because you know it, and because lies, one and all, are alien to the truth. Now who is a liar? Who but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, for he denies both the Father and the Son. To deny the Son is to be without the Father. To acknowledge the Son is to have the Father too. You must therefore keep in your hearts that which you heard at the beginning. If what you heard then still dwells in you, you will yourselves dwell in the Son and also in the Father. And this is the promise that he gave us, the promise of eternal life. So much for those who would mislead you. But as for you, the anointing which you receive from him stays with you. You need no other teacher, but learn all you need to know from his anointing, which is real and no illusion, as he taught you then, dwell in him. 
Even now my children dwell in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, then you must recognize that every man who does right is his child. How great is the love that the Father has shown towards us. We are called God's children, and such we are. And the reason why the godless world does not recognize us is that it has not known Him. Here and now, dear friends, we are God's children. What we shall be has not yet been disclosed, but we know that when it is disclosed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope before Him purifies himself, as Christ is pure. To commit sin is to break God's law. Sin, in fact, is lawlessness, and Christ appeared, as you know, to do away with sins. And there is no sin in him. No man, therefore, who dwells in him is a sinner. The sinner has not seen him and does not know him. My children, do not be misled. It is the man who does right who is righteous as God is righteous. The man who persists in sin is a child of the devil. For the devil has been a sinner from the first, and the Son of God appeared for the very purpose of undoing the devil's work. A child of God does not persist in sin because the divine seed remains in him. He cannot be an habitual sinner because he is God's child. That is the distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil. No one who does not do right is God's child, nor is anyone who, anyone who does not love his brother. For the message which you have heard from the beginning is this, that we should love one another, unlike Cain, who was a child of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were wrong and his brothers were right. My brethren, do not be surprised if the world hates you. We, for our part, have crossed over from death to life. This we know because we love our brethren. The man who does not love is still in the realm of death. For anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And no murderer, as you know, has eternal life dwelling in him. It's by this that we even know what love is. That Christ laid down his life for us. And we, in our turn, are bound to lay down our lives for our brethren. But if a man has enough to live on, and yet when he sees his brother in need, shuts up his heart against him, how can it be said that the divine love dwells in him? My children, love must not be a matter of words or talk. It must be genuine and show itself in action. Thus we may come to know that we belong to the realm of truth and can convince ourselves in His sight that even if our conscience condemns us, God is greater than our conscience and knows all. My dear friends, if our conscience does not condemn us, then we may approach God with confidence and obtain from Him whatever we ask because we are keeping His commands and doing what He approves. And this is His command that we believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another as He commanded. When we keep His commands, we dwell in Him, and He dwells in us, and this is how we can be sure that He dwells within us. We know it from the Spirit He has given us. But do not trust any and every spirit, my friends, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For among those who have gone out into the world are many prophets falsely inspired. And this is how you may recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is from God. While every spirit that does not thus acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is what is meant by Antichrist. You were told he was to come, and here he is in the world already. But you, my children, you are of God's family. And you have the mastery over these false prophets, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the godless world. They are of that world, and so therefore is their teaching, and that is why the world listens to them. Well, we belong to God. And the man that knows God listens to us. While the man that does not belong to God refuses us a hearing. This is how we distinguish the spirit of truth 
from the spirit of error. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, while the unloving know nothing of God, for God is love. And his love was disclosed to us in this, that he sent his only son into the world to bring us life. The love I speak of is not our love for God, but the love that he showed to us in sending his son to be the remedy for the defilement of our sins. If God thus loved us, dear friends, we in our turn are bound to love one another. For although while God has never been seen by any man, God himself dwells in us. If we love one another, His love is brought to perfection within us. Here's the proof that we dwell in Him and He dwells in us. He has imparted His Spirit to us. Moreover, we have seen for ourselves, and we attest, that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And if a man acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, then God dwells in him, and He dwells in God. Thus, we have come to know and believe the love which the Father has for us. For God is love. And he who dwells in love is dwelling in God and God in him. And this is for us the perfection of love. To have confidence on the day of judgment. And this we can have. Because even in this world we are as he is. There is no room for fear in love. Perfect love banishes fear. For fear brings with it the pangs of judgment. And no one who is afraid has attained to love in its perfection. We love because he first loved us. But if a man says, well, I love God while hating his brother, he is a liar. For if he cannot love the brother whom he has seen, it cannot be that he loves God whom he has not seen. And indeed, this command comes to us from Christ himself, that he who loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God. And to love the parent means to love his child. It follows in that when we love God and obey his commands, that we love his children too. For to love God is to keep His commands, and they are not burdensome. For every child of God is victor over the godless world. The victory that defeats the world is our faith. For who is victor over the world? Who but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came with water and blood, Jesus Christ. He came not by water alone, but by water and blood. And there is the Spirit to bear witness, for the Spirit is truth. For there are three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. We accept human testimony. Surely divine testimony is stronger. And this threefold testimony is indeed that of God himself, the witness he has borne to his Son. He who believes in the Son has this testimony in his own heart. But he who disbelieves God makes him out to be a liar by refusing to accept God's own witness to his Son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is found in his Son. He who possesses the Son has life indeed. He who does not possess the Son of God has not that life. This letter is to assure you that you have eternal life, and it is addressed to those who believe on the name of the Son of God. We may approach God with confidence for this reason. If we make requests which accord with His will, He listens to us. And we know that if our requests are heard, then we know the things which we ask for are ours. Now, if a man sees his brother committing a sin, which is not a deadly sin, he should pray to God for him, and God will grant him life. That is, when men are not guilty of deadly sin. For there is such a thing as deadly sin, and I do not suggest you should pray about that. For while all all wrongdoing is sin, not all sin is deadly sin. Now, we know 
that no child of God is an habitual sinner. It is the Son of God who keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot touch him. And we know that we are of God's family, while the whole godless world lies under the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding to know Him who is real. Indeed, we are in Him who is real, because we are in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God. This is eternal life. Dearly loved ones, be on the watch against false gods. And so ends John's wonderful letter. Be on the watch against false gods, brethren, whether they be theological, like not believing that Jesus was God and man. A false understanding of who this Jesus is. A a painting portrayed to you by the Mormon church, which looks beautiful, but they don't believe that Jesus is the same Jesus you worship. Any image of Jesus, of God, he forbids it. In India, our pastors go into villages where they've never heard the gospel, that are full of idols, and we preach a God who's a jealous God, who's above all gods, will have no other God before him, and will not allow any images to be made of him. That's the stumbling block. Our pastors get beaten every day because they won't build an idol to the God we worship. Be on the watch against false gods. Whether they be idols and images, or whether they be a lifestyle or a culture. You know the story of Esther? This beautiful girl taken into the the emperor's harem who won his heart, who was a Jew. And Haman, who hated the Jews through Mordecai and then decided to kill all the Jews and they determined a day to do that. And Mordecai, her uncle, went to her and said, Esther, you have to do something. She said, I can't do anything. If I go into the king unbidden, he will kill me. If he doesn't want me, he'll kill me. Just with a word. Mordecai said, don't think that you can escape. If you don't speak up, deliverance will come to his people another way. But destruction will come to your house, your father's house. And how do you know if you've not come to this place of royalty for such a time as this? And we sit here in a land of abundance, even though we've got 9.5 or 10% unemployment, or 11 or 12 or 13, and, and, and we still can choose what coffee to have today, how much food to throw away today. Or we get choices. We are in a land of abundance. And don't think that you will escape. Because see, these are disciplines on the world right now. And they're to get us to pay heed Jesus would say, don't think that the Haitians are worse sinners than you. But if you do not repent, you also will perish. Don't think that you can escape. If we don't do something now with our abundance, if we don't prove the love of God in our hearts with our abundance, God will deliver His children another way. Even if He takes them home, He'll deliver them. But you get an 8-4 earthquake here today, And everything will change. You'll be just like the Haitians. Safeways won't open. The trucks won't run. The the bridges won't work. And there'll be people dying everywhere, just like they were in Haiti. I drove down the street in Haiti. There were dead bodies every 10 feet for three miles. And those are the ones that could get out. Destruction will come. It's coming on the earth, of course. But how do you know whether you have not come to this place of abundance for such a time as this. 
that you might love in the world like Jesus loved. I'm, I'm astounded at how many people give. The world is being generous to Haiti right now. Six months from now, I don't know. But it's not money we need. It's prayer that takes time. It's people loving them enough to tell them about Jesus. It's winning those 250,000 children to Christ and winning Haiti through them. That takes a dedication of heart. It takes the love of Jesus to do that. That's Haiti's resource. It's their children. And we can win them to Christ. India's resource. We can win them to Christ. Liberia's. We can win them to Christ. And they can win their generation. It's our turn, brethren. The love of Christ in us leaves us no choice. He constrains us. Where to go. Whether it's across the street or into our prayer closet or across the world, we're constrained. Join me, would you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. For those here who heard that we want to look at our lives and our careers and our lifestyles and our, all the things that have become idols to us, Lord, and, and set them aside to serve you, the only true God, with all of our hearts. We sang it. All of our soul, all of our strength. Those are good words. Would you make them realities in our life? As we stand before you for whatever need has come into our life today and we examine ourselves before we eat the bread and drink the cup, can we say with certainty that we have loved like you've loved us? In our turn, are we loving in fact and in deed, not just in word? Can we say that we have put nothing before your will, nothing before our love of you, nothing before our strength exerted towards you, that in fact we are not subject to idols. God, would you make us realize that such a time as this has come to the world right now and we can, we can make a change by your power in us. You, we can do immeasurably beyond all we can ask or conceive by the power which is at work among us your power working in us. We can glorify your name by doing the deeds you've given us to do. Trusting you. Believing you. Oh God, enable us to love. In Jesus' name, amen.